invite you to turn to Mark 13. We're going to try to finish this thing today and cover verses 28 to 37. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you. And uh, put your finger in 2 Peter 3, and depending on how much time we have, uh, we'll either start at verse 3 or verse uh, 10. calling this one get ready with an exclamation point on the end get ready mark 13 28 to 37 and uh, i'm sure as you know because you've been here for several weeks we have been going through uh, a series that is looking and examining at the response one giant response of the lord jesus to his disciples when they asked what would be the signs of the end of the age and the conclusion of all things and of his coming. And beginning with verse 5 all the way to verse 27, Jesus was answering that question. And and uh, as I have noted earlier, uh, I think at least once or twice, uh, there has been a recurring theme where where Jesus isn't just saying these things just because he needs something to fill the time, but these truths, as with all the truths of Scripture, should impact us. There is an application, and sometimes, uh, you know, we we have to spend some effort and time combing the narrative, uh, you know, as opposed to the epistles where uh, the entire sermon may be focused on this command or that truth. Uh, sometimes with, with narrative, we have to comb to see what, what, what is this telling us that we should be doing? What should be true in our behavior because of these 10, 15, 20 or more verses? Well, the recurring theme uh, that we have seen before, uh, verse 5, Jesus says to see to it. Uh, in verse 9, be on your guard. And again, take heed and take heed and be on the alert. Be watching, be waiting. That has been the recurring theme. And these closing verses, we see that repeated for emphasis. The Lord does not want us to conclude this section on eschatology and just think, oh, that's just a bunch of interesting stuff. There is an application. It is is these entire closing 10 verses. First, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to uh, give the application by means of a parable in verses 28 to 29. And then he's going to undergird the point of the parable with a promise in verse 30 and 31. And then He is going to prepare his disciples to carry out that application in verse 32 and 33. He is going to paint another picture of the point in verse 34. And then he's going to repeat the point again in the closing verses, 35 through 37. And I don't, I I recognize that the Lafferty's are in the second row, but if I say all those P's again, I'm afraid that spit range Uh, uh, I I don't want to sprinkle uh, here in this church. So let's read the text beginning at verse 28. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. 
Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. That's... Look at the parable that the Lord uses to kick this off. He says in verse 28, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. And again, as with with other parables, we are drawn to uh, uh, the the life of horticulture and agriculture. Um, We saw a couple chapters ago, Jesus used the the fig tree as a symbol of Israel. That was when they were first entering Jerusalem. Jerusalem, just before he cleansed the temple, here he is pointing to their knowledge of horticulture and and how trees grow and what trees do as an analogy for the signs that we have all been looking at these last several weeks. Now, how do I how do we know that uh, that the fig tree isn't supposed to be Israel, that is he's using it just as any other tree? Well, in Luke's parallel, Luke 21, 29, Luke writes this, behold, the fig tree and all the trees. And if you look at the at the parable as, as Mark outlines it, Jesus explains precisely what he means. He says, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, I'll remind you that they are on the Mount of Olives, which, what do you think the mountain is covered with? Olive, olive trees. So, so there are many olive trees around, and something that I didn't know uh, until I studied this chapter is that olive trees are evergreen. Now, I say evergreen, and, and all you Northwesterners know exactly what evergreen is. I come from the land of California where it's occasional green and ever brown. Evergreen trees, what, what, what's, what's, what's particular about evergreen trees? They're green all year round, right? They don't, their leaves don't change with, with the seasons. But fig trees do. And in all likelihood, there is one fig tree right within viewing distance when Jesus is going through this discourse. And uh, maybe at that moment, kind of like in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, you know, behold the birds of the air, and there probably was a flock that just uh, flew right over them. Probably right at this moment, there was a, a gentle uh, breeze that 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 breezed by, and the the lee, the branches would sway a little bit. And why would they do that? Well, in the spring, 
sap begins to course through the branches. And when that happens, the, the nutrients are start flowing to the leaves and they become supple and they become tender and, and they generate, they, they sprout leaves. And Jesus even says this in the present, in the present tense. He says, uh, um, it is putting forth its leaf as if to suggest that if they, just, if they were to hold their breath and if they were to, to watch it they, and, and uh, slow time down, they, or speed time up rather, they could actually see the leaves sprouting before their very eyes. It's happening right now. This is something that they all knew. I don't care what, uh, many of them were fishermen. I don't care uh, what their professions were. This is something everybody knew. This was common knowledge. And Jesus is drawing on that, something that, that was instinctive, something that was obvious. You see the leaves, you see the branches swaying because they're soft and tender. What can you logically conclude? What is near? Summer, right? If, if, if it's sprouting leaves and if it's tender, it is currently spring. It is near the end of spring. Summer is on the way. He says, even so, which means just like that, in that manner, you too, when you see these things happening, and he is speaking to the 12, because they don't know whether or not they're going to live through these things, but we know, looking back, that he's speaking to the generation that is going to be living at the end times. He says, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, now, who's, who's the you? I just said it, he, he's addressing the disciples who are living at the time that these things are happening. Well, what things? Well, start at verse 5 and go all the way to verse 20, what is it, 24, 27. No, 20, uh, 26 is where Jesus comes back. Verse 5 to verse 25, all those signs, those are these things the the rise of many false christs and the coming of wars and earthquakes and famines and persecution and even more false christs and false prophets these ones even with false signs and wonders and then there would even be the antichrist who will desolate judea with his abomination and even the darkening of the the lights in the sky when you see those signs recognize recognize what recognize that summer's near what what are his disciples to recognize he is near don't be looking for a season be looking for a person for for jesus for the lord for the son of man he is near right at the door and the idea is is uh, literally it's right upon the door as if to say that when these things happening when these things are happening, the people of God are up against the wall and there's nowhere left to turn. They don't need to wonder, has, has he even taken notice? Does he even know what's going on here? Did, did he get the memo? Is he delayed? Is he stuck in traffic? Does he have a flat tire? Where is he? Is he, is he coming or is this how it's going to end? No, he is. Jesus wants his disciples and you and me and his disciples of all of all the ages to know that he is not far off. And he's not up the street. He is not 
just around the corner. He is very, very near, even with his hand upon the door, about to walk in. That's the parable. And he reinforces that parable with a promise. We see that in verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He, look, look how he starts this off. Truly I say to you, as if, and that doesn't suggest that there was ever anything that Jesus ever said that was false, but everything Jesus said was true, but not everything that Jesus said was as applicable or directly applicable. And the, 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 uh, the idea of this phrase is when you're trying to convince somebody of something, when you're, when you're trying to reason with them, and it's really important, there's, there's gravity to the situation, and you say something like, listen to me. Listen to me. Trust me in this. Uh, you're not saying that you know, what you said five minutes ago wasn't trustworthy, but th- there, is, there is vital importance. You listen and take to the bank what he is saying here. You need to listen. You need to apply these words. Truly, I say to you, which underlines the seriousness of the issue. It's going to be quite serious for believers living in those days, don't you think? It underlines the seriousness of, of those days, but it also underlines the certainty of Jesus' words. He says, this generation will not pass away. Who's that generation? It's the generation who saw the beginning of these things. We saw a couple weeks ago, Daniel 9 sees, sees the time frame of of these uh, of this period of these events, he sees uh, Daniel nine outlined this as a week, not a week of days, but a week of years. It's a seven year period. That's not last time I checked. Seven years isn't enough time for one generation to come and go, right? So thus, the generation that sees these things begin is also going to see them come to pass, and and therein lies the intention of the promise. This is a promise that is meant to encourage and meant to comfort those who are going to be in the worst days the world has ever known. The catastrophic devastation in every sphere of life and society is going to make people give up all hope for a better future. People are going to be convinced all life is going to be lost in those days. Right, Hollywood can't make a catastrophe worse enough or bad enough or great enough or epic enough to even come close to the magnitude of devastation that will mark those days. Things will be irrevocably bleak. All men, even the most stout of them, the most stoic of them, they will all be driven to despair. I'm sure some of you have had dark days, days where you have felt little hope, little hope, little little worth in getting up in the day. The entire world will feel like that in those days, a whole lot of them. Everyone will be drawn into utter despair, and people will be inclined, people will be convinced, this is it. It's all over after this. Jesus says, no, this generation will survive it. 
And they're going to come, these events, these things, these phenomena, these catastrophes, they are going to come to an end before that generation passes away. Now look how he, look how he reinforces that promise which, which undergirds the parable. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. Haven't we read that already? I mean, hasn't Jesus even explained that in the last 20 or so verses? Haven't we seen that in the book of Revelation? Heaven and earth will pass away. So far in all of the discourse, Jesus has already described the decline and really the, the destabilization of not only society and the earth and governments, but even the world and the cosmos. Revelation 6 to 16, as we've seen, describes all the judgments of God that will be a cause of that. We're, really, what, what we have seen in Exodus has been a rehearsal. It's been a preview of what is coming in the final days. In 2 Peter 3.10, we'll, we'll come back to this later, but 2 Peter 3.10 says this, The heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up into a husk. Revelation 21 1 says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Just like that. Now, staggering as that sounds, It'll happen. But what will never happen, what cannot happen in any way, for any reason, in any manner, is that a single word, is for a single word of the Lord Jesus Christ to fall flat. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not my words, says Jesus. They will Never pass away. Beloved, I I hope you can feel the weight and the certainty of 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 that statement. My words will not, and you could put in parentheses, in any way, at any time, for any reason, in any circumstance, my words will not pass away. There's no way... Uh, the, in, in the Greek, it, it, there's a, a special construction that, that emphasizes under no reason, under, un, under no circumstance, could this ever happen? Not a likelihood, not a possibility, no, not, none yet. Not going to happen. And I hope you can see that no mere prophet ever, ever spoke this way. It was, it was never their words that expressed surety of happening. They were God's words. Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, uh, really says what, what was in the mind and heart of every prophet ever. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. But the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands for a long time, for a pretty long time. Longer than anything else. How long? You know it. Forever. The word of the Lord stands forever. Heaven and earth won't last forever, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And then in 55.11, God himself says, My word goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, 
without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You and I can can send our words forth and they can come back empty all day left and right up and down. Not God's words. Only his words can be said to never fail, to never pass away, to always come to pass. And yet, Jesus says the very thing about his words. Hmm. What do you think the implication is? If God's words never fail, if God's words never pass away, and Jesus says, my words never pass away, what's the implication? Almost as if Jesus is trying to imply he's not no normal man. Now, one of the disciples, maybe all the disciples at this point are probably wondering, heaven and earth passing away, when is that going to happen? And I imagine during the final three and a half years when it gets down to the last months or weeks or days or or hours, and it's going to be so bad, really Bad, and all these signs have happened, including the, the darkening and the disruption and the decline of even the sun and moon and stars. Believers are going to be asking, is it going to be in the morning? What, is it going to be at noon? When's he coming back? In the evening? Midnight? Today? Tomorrow? Next Monday? This week? Next week? When? When is it going to be? When? Jesus, inquiring minds want to know, when are you coming back? And Jesus prepares his disciples, both these four who who asked this question, as well as the whole 12, and every disciple since that day, including every disciple today and every disciple until that will be until he comes back. He prepares us all by answering that question. And sometimes when we ask a question, we want a yes or no, or we want an exact answer. God isn't obligated to answer yes and no. He he answers in his preparation for them in verse 32 and 33. But of that day or of that hour, so he's getting specific. He's coming down to, to the day or the hour or even the minute. No one No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Why would he say that? Let me ask you a question. What is is the natural response that you and I have towards responsibility and towards important dates? When we know that a wedding is far off, when we have nine months, Ten months to fit into that tux or to fit into that dress, and I won't judge what, which one you're going to wear. We have a long time to lose those five or ten pounds. What's our natural response? What do we do? Do we, do we go out and buy that elliptical or that treadmill or get that gym membership right now, or do we wait a couple weeks, a couple months? Day before. Yes. That is, that is how most of us, that is what we naturally do when we, 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 when we have the opportunity to start preparing ourselves and start getting to work now, we typically relax a little bit. You know, there's plenty of time. But here we are not told when. 
And kids, you I'm sure you know this because you have homework assignments, right? Don't you have... Don't you guys have projects that are sometimes a week week out, two weeks out? When do you start working? Actually, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you guys start working. Yeah, most most kids most kids wait until the night before. That was that was when I was introduced to my good friend caffeine. We are not told when because Jesus doesn't want his disciples just living it up. And then repenting and getting their life in order right at the last minute. That is what we would be inclined to do. So we must keep ready. Now there's going to be more on that in a moment. But notice how Jesus details the, the, um, the ambiguity of the timing, of the date. He says, of that day or hour. That is the precise time, the precise moment it's all going to end. No one knows. Ah, but you, you may be thinking, uh, maybe the disciples were thinking, we are but mere mortal men. We are, we are finite beings. If we could call up, a, call up an angel, you know, the, the angels. Doesn't Isaiah 6 say that, that, the angels are, that there are angels even uh, flying around the throne room and they, they are privy to, to, to the counsel of God? Surely they would know. Well, Jesus says, not even the angels in heaven. Well, what, what about the Son? Doesn't, doesn't the Father share uh, this kind of information with the Son? Nor the Son. Nobody, nobody's business, and nobody knows but who? The Father alone. Now, as, as we're going through this, maybe you, and, and I'm sure this is probable because many Christians throughout the ages have, have thought, doesn't this kind of paint a contradiction in the Bible? I mean, doesn't, isn't Jesus God, and doesn't God know everything isn't he what what the theologians call omniscient doesn't he have all knowledge how can he be god and not know something any anyone ever wrestled with that just me just just us three everyone else has it all figured out it's okay you can admit it because there have been many christians uh those of you who were here uh, last year when we did the church survey, we saw how questions like these were questions and, and struggles that the early church spent centuries trying to figure out. How is, he, how is he man and how is he God and how does he have attributes of both? Well, as, as I just said, Jesus has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And the human nature allowed Things to be said of Jesus that couldn't be said of God. And what I mean is this. God never grows tired. God doesn't eat food. He doesn't need food. God doesn't dwell in houses made with hands. It doesn't act say that. God doesn't need a bed. God doesn't need shelter. Uh, yet in the incarnation, when God the Son acquired, took upon human nature. We, we talked about that when we looked at Philippians 1 
or no, Philippians 2 a couple weeks ago, in the incarnation where, where the eternal uh, uh, second person of the Trinity took upon, added to himself, acquired a human nature, then it could be said, God was born. Think about that. God could be found to be in one place while at the same time not being in another place. He went, he, he went into Galilee, which means he's not in Judea. He went into a house, which means he's not outside. He is, in some way, the omnipresent God is now fixed to one location. Think about this. God had a mother. God could grow weary and need to sleep. Didn't we see that on the boat? And most, most amazing of, it, of all, it could be further said, and it is joyously said, as we will look after, uh, the, serv- after the sermon in communion, it could be said that God, the eternal, the immortal, the immutable God, could suffer and bleed and die. So, and, and theologians have a, 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 a real, uh, a real uh, scholarly term called the hypostatic union. If you want to know more about this, go look that up. Hypostatic union. And so in some unique way, and I have, to, I have to emphasize this is unique because hypostatic unions don't pop up every day. Hypostatic unions don't, don't uh, uh, color the pages of history. They don't, uh, they're not found in the history books. This is something unique. This is something unrelatable to us because we are not like that. He so in this way, in a way that I can't fully express, in a way that I can't sometimes fully understand, he who is fully God, who possesses omniscience, could also not know something. In many other places, Jesus clearly does possess a supernatural knowledge. We've seen in Mark 2, Mark, uh, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. He read their thoughts. Remember that? In Mark 5, he knew that a woman touched the hem of his garments because he felt power coming out of him. I can't do that, can you? I can feel power going into me when I drink my coffee, but I can't feel power going out. John 1, he saw Nathanael under the fig fig tree. John 2, he knew what was in the hearts of men and he didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in men. And that really is... Uh, a major emphasis in John's gospel. And this could be a a study all of its own. I I am not even trying to be exhaustive with the number of many passages and many texts that we could go to to see that God, that, that, that Jesus knows things that only God can know, right? But yet here, we see something We see a case where he doesn't know. And yet at the same time, he doesn't cease to be God. He never ceased. He he wasn't diluted in his divinity. He never in any way, at any moment, to to even an iota, ceased or degraded being God. Colossians 1.15 
He is the image. It is, he is the exact representation. Meaning, if I if I took a piece of paper and I go to our sweet new uh, uh, Canon copier and I put it in and I make and I press the button and I make a copy and I, here's the original, here's a copy, and I look back and forth and they look exactly the same to the point that I can't tell which is which. That's the idea. Christ is the exact represent, representation. He is an exact duplicate. He shares every attribute and every essence as the Father. Verse 19, Colossians 1.19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness, not most, not a lot, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So, so in some way that I can't, I, I, I know I'm not doing justice to explain it, but in some way he is the omniscient God who yet in some way is ignorant of the time he's coming back most theologians would would say that he uh, in a way that you and i can't do he suppressed that knowledge i do that all the time when i can't find where my keys are that's an involuntary suppression of knowledge this is a voluntary suppression of knowledge i don't know how he did it but he did it and the point is this, it, I, I, the point is for us not to struggle over how he did it. The point is this, if the angels don't know, and if the second person of the Trinity doesn't know, and uh, I, I would assume also the, the, the Holy Spirit, if only the Father knows the moment and the timing that Jesus is coming back, then surely no man knows. And yet how many times how many books have we read or how many times have we seen men uh, anticipate or predict when Jesus is coming back? When that happens, you can automatically dismiss that claim and that person for being delusional or intentionally deceptive. I mean, what part of no one knows is hard to understand. What part of that do we, do we, not, see, do we not get? In 1988, a man... A, a pastor by the name of Edgar Wisnant, that's a name, wrote a book called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Last time I checked, that didn't happen in 1988. And so in 1989, he took them through it all. He took his church through it all again. And, and what happened with them happens every time a pastor or a preacher or, or a, a voice makes a claim or a prediction People sell all their things. They, they get whipped into such a fervor and they sell their things and, and they, they give them to this man and to the church and they, they, they uh, just completely revolve their lives around this supposed anticipation of, of when the Lord is coming back. Uh, the, Mil- the, the, the Millerites did that in 1843 and 1844. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have done it a number of times in 1914, 1941, 1975, and I think the most the most recent one would be Harold Camping. I think he did it five times. How that man had a following is beyond me. And every time it hap- every time it happens, and Christians sell all their things and they get whipped up into such a hype and into such a hysteria, and then it doesn't happen. Who looks the fool? Christians. So the next time that happens, write that, write that, whoever it is, uh, uh, the, the radio preacher or the pastor or even me, write them off as a quack. 
And this reinforces God's standard for prophecy in the Bible. We see this in Deuteronomy 18. If anyone says they have a word from the Lord and what they say doesn't come to pass, guess what? That wasn't a word from the Lord. I, I, I don't know how the batting accuracy goes. I don't know what a, what a perfect batting accuracy is, but God expects perfect, 100% prophetic accuracy from his prophets. If they're wrong, they didn't come from him. So he says, take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. And he'll actually reiterate that moments before he ascends in Acts 7. He says, they ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Are you at this time uh, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And the point is this, is that Christians should not be lollygagging and living their lives the way they want to live and then at the last moment rushing to get their affairs in orders. When when do we get the most uh, work done cleaning our house? Ten minutes before guests arrive, am I right? That is not how we should be living our Christian lives scurrying around with great fervor and great urgency at the last minute after years and years and years of just doing whatever we wanted to do. Now, he illustrates that with a picture, verse 34. A picture of what our lives are to look like as we wait for Christ. He says, it is like a man away on a journey. And that man you know, this is another parable. He doesn't call it a parable, but it is. The man is Jesus. He is the master of the house. He is the master of those who are working in the house. His journey is his return to the Father in heaven where he is sitting at the Father's right hand. And he leaves his house. The house is the household of faith. It's the house that he has built, the house of disciples. That's us. And before leaving, he has entrusted his, his slaves, his servants with responsibility. He says, he says he has put his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task. That's what he did in the Great Commission. That's what he has prepared the 12 for these last three years. He has handed them the kingdom. He has charged them. He has commissioned them, and he has sent them out to work while he was away. He didn't say, go and relax a little. He says, go and make disciples and we aren't sent out as as apostles but we are given we are all given spiritual gifts that are meant to be employed in service to the king and to his body which means to one another first corinthians 12 12 says that there are many members how many bodies one body many members all part of one body and you know what Each member is different from the other. And you know what? That's a good thing. Could you imagine a body with six legs, uh, five ears, no arms, no hands? 1 Peter 4.10 says that each one has received a special gift. Employ it. Don't just sit on it. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
his grace is manifold. It comes down in many different ways. It comes down to me in a way that it may not come down to you. I have a gift that you don't have. You have a gift that she doesn't have. She has a gift that I don't have. And yet we're all expected to put our gift into employment, into service, into action. And then Jesus continues. He also, prior to leaving, he commanded the doorkeeper to be on alert. This this is a, a special responsibility that a, a certain slave, a, one that the master would trust, he would give him a, a special responsibility. And this man, this servant, this slave, would be the gatekeeper of the house. And his responsibility would be to guard and to monitor entrance to the house. He would, he would guard against thieves and brigands. He would, and then he would open also to those who had a reason, a legitimate reason to be in the house, to those who belonged in the house. Above all people, the master himself. To him he opens. This man, this, this servant had no right or privilege or prerogative to go off and preoccupy himself with, with other things. He has been entrusted with an important job to do. He is expected to remain there and to remain faithful with what has been entrusted to him. That that attitude of of working while waiting and watching is exactly what Jesus wants you and me and all disciples to possess as we wait for him. And we see that very clearly as he repeats the point in the following three, 35, 36, three verses. He says, and this is the point of the whole Olivet Discourse. It's the point of this message. It's the the point of the whole thing. Therefore, be on the alert. I mean, how many times has he instructed the 12 and, and by implication us as well in this whole chapter to be watching? How many times has he said to take heed? How many times has he said to be on the alert, to be watching, looking, be on the alert, take heed? He's used different verbs he's used different words but they all overlap and they all essentially mean the same thing this last one uh, this one that appears four times in these uh, closing verses uh, means to chase away sleep it's the word gregorio what does that sound like gregorio ever heard of the gregorian monks were the monks known for being slothful or lazy, or selfish. This word, Gregorio, it, it means to chase away sleep. And in, the, in, in our vernacular, we could, we could uh, have the idea of, of slapping ourselves in the face, or, or sucking on a lemon, or doing whatever it takes to discipline ourselves away from, from dullness, away from distraction, away from lethargy, when we are expected when, when it is essential, when it is necessary that we are awake and alert. And this, this means, if, if we're going to put this into practice, this means to discipline ourselves against any activity, any choice, any, any pattern of life, any lifestyle, any, any um, manner of behavior that would keep us from being faithful, from having a spiritual fervor, uh, anything that would cause us to be ashamed if the Lord were to appear right now in our midst. John, 1 John 2.28 says to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not 
shrink back away from him in shame at his coming. Beloved, there are going to be Christians who will not be looking forward to his return because they will be quite preoccupied with their lives, with their priorities, with the castles of sand that they have built for themselves, for their temporary pleasures. And when he appears, and they will see the futility of the way they organized and prioritized their life, they will see the futility and the wastefulness wastefulness with which their lives will be evaluated in, and they will be ashamed of themselves. No pastor wants that for his flock. No pastor wants that for himself either, by the way. How embarrassing and shameful it would be if, if you were given a job to do by your boss and you know, not just a not just a TPS report, not just something lame, something important, something crucial, something that really will have an impact on not only the company but on your own boss, on your on your boss, whom you know he's not just your boss, he's your friend, he's somebody who knows you, who's invested himself into you, and to be given an important job to do and to be entrusted with his resources, to be paid on his time, and to have him pop in to see how you're doing instead of working hard, instead of your hand being on the plow, your hands on the phone, playing Facebook, playing Clash of Clans or silly little games or on the phone looking at cat memes or whatever. When, when you would want to see satisfaction in his eyes, when you would want to see pride in the one who has entrusted so much to you and instead you see disappointment, how horrible will that be? must be found waiting we must be found working we must be found watching in in whatever capacity god has given you some of you are fathers and mothers some of you many of you are husbands and wives some of you are sons and daughters many of you are are either employers or employees whatever capacity whatever sphere in which god has placed you and with whatever gifts and talents he has given you, however he has crafted you, be faithful, be working, be watching. What are you doing with the sphere that God has planted you in? What are you doing with it? If the Lord were, see it's 1143, if the Lord were to return at 147 this afternoon, and he were to review the last 24 hours of your life, what would he say? How would you feel? If the last week, if the last month, if the last year were reviewed, all your choices, all your priorities, all your decisions, the, the way in which you invested your resources, your time, your energy, yourself, the way you treated your husband or wife, the way you prayed or didn't pray with your children, the way you did or didn't lift one, up and one, one another up in support and love and admonition, the way you did or didn't serve one another, what would the Lord say? Would, would you be happy and satisfied or would you be ashamed at his coming? That's a, that is a healthy question, 
a healthy assessment that is good for us to make from time to time. Get ready. He says, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. And these, and these are the four watches of the night. And the night is, is when most people are resting and, and taking it easy. Whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. And th- these are all times that you would not expect somebody to come to your house and knock on your door. In case he should come suddenly, and the idea is unexpectedly, without notice, and find you asleep. If the Lord were to come back tonight, tomorrow, what, in what manner would he find you? Think of the disciples in the garden. What were they doing when they should have been praying? It is a good and healthy thing to take a long, sober look in the mirror and to assess your priorities. Beloved, are you, am I, are we awake and alert or have we become drowsy? What would the Lord find if he came today? And then he he concludes with this. What I say to you, and and, and the you in in this sense, I think is he's, he's... He's rounding it up and he's, he's uh, talking to Peter and James and John and Andrew. He says, what I say to you for, I say to all. And you know what? You and I are in there. The Lafferty's are in all. The Swansons are in all. All of the Lamborns are in all. And the, and the McCafferty's and Davis and Leslie and Brian and Don and Matt and Sim and Denise and the Qualls and even you, George. And Jennifer and I, and the Comos, and even Eric too. Jesus says to all his disciples, be on the alert. Don't miss this. Don't, don't leave this all of it discourse and think, oh, that is just some fascinating information. I'm going to file that away the next time anyone asks me about how, how the world's going to end. It doesn't really have any... Uh, uh, clear application for my life i don't really get it i get i do get kind of caught up on some of the you know some of those details about the leopard and the lion and the beast and this and that but i really don't know what to do with all this be on the alert be watching be waiting be on the alert and don't wait there was a over there was a conversation overheard between satan and his demons and he said how should we ruin the human race? And one came forward with his suggestion. He says, we'll tell them there is no God. And there was a a small round of applause. And Satan said, no, that's not going to work. God has put eternity in their heart. And and the heavens declare the glory of his handiwork. So that there are going to be so few who are so foolish to believe that, that there is no God. Well, that demon was embarrassed. And another stepped forward and said, I know. We will tell the people there is no final judgment. There is no hell. That will be our master plan. And a couple others uh, applauded. And uh, Satan said, no, people know that there has to be a place called hell. Man looks left and right and sees 
that there is wrong in the world and he has a desire and he knows that God must step in at some point and make all things right and balance the scales. And so that demon went back embarrassed and ashamed. A third demon stepped forward and this one was more shrewd than the others and he said this, this is, this is what we're going to do. And everyone, all the, other, all the other demons were silent. And he says, we will tell mankind that there is a God. And we will tell them that there is a final judgment, a day where they will have to account. But we will tell them that they have all the time in the world to make a decision. We will tell them they don't have to hurry and that they don't have to be on the alert. There is plenty of time for them to live their own lives. And with that, Satan clapped, clasped his hands and he said, that, that is what we will do. That is our plan. We will tell man he has much time to do what he needs to do. There's a germ of truth to that, isn't it? Turn to Second Peter. I'm going to ask you to bear with me. I, I really would like to start at verse three, chapter three, verse three, and I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to make any comments. I just want to read what the Apostle Peter, what Pastor Peter has to say, and I think you will see some of his. Uh, some things that he learned from the Olivet Discourse in this. And we'll, we'll transition into the Lord's Supper after this. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the day, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Is that my timer? Is that my timer, Don? Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I should probably start out. No. Since all these things are up. Okay. Okay. Application. Application. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy? That means distinct, separate, unlike the rest of the world. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning 
and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I will conclude with verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to be a people of holy conduct and holy behavior. Help us to help us to be grounded in the holy promise of Jesus Christ that he will come back and save those all those who belong to him. Lord, we don't we don't strive and toil and we don't work and slave away to in order to earn our salvation. We 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 work and toil and slave away because you have saved us. We toil away out of appreciation and out of worship and out of obedience and out of love for you and for our fellow man, knowing that our that our service glorifies you and it edifies and builds up our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Help us to be on the alert. Amen.